Titus chapter 3, and we'll start reading in verse 1. The title of the message is His Kindness, Love, and Mercy. Put them in mind to be subject to the rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready, to do every good work, to speak evil of no one, not being quarrelsome, but forbearing, showing all meekness to all men. For we ourselves also were once foolish, disobedient, deceiving, slaving for uh, various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not of works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us, through the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, that being justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Faithful is the word, and as these things I desire that you strongly affirm that those believing God might be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men, but avoid foolish questions and genealogies and contentions and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and vain. After the first and second warning, reject a man of heresy, knowing that he who is such has been perverted and sins being self-condemned. And I hope I can uh, cover all those verses that I just read. At the end there, some like farewells and stuff, which we're not going to cover in the message. But as believers in this fallen, sinful world, we are very easily distracted and pulled away from our life priority of Christ and Him crucified. First of all, consider yourself blessed if you even know that's your priority. Because a lot of people hear about their life priority being Christ and Him crucified. What? And they want to talk about something else. As far, and I'm talking about people who claim to be believers. We know that God's Word kind of sums up our goal in our life that we are to glorify God. We see that in many places in various ways. We can kind of sum that up, that that's, that should be our goal. And um, you don't have to turn there, but 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all things to the glory of God. Everything that you do, do it in light of the glory of God. And then, as we always talk about, everything that we do and learn and speak, promote, we are to do those things in the ministry in the light of the gospel. Knowing that the, the rule of our life, the, the rule of the new creature, as it states in Galatians six fourteen through 16, it is God forbid that I should glory except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the rule of the new creature. And since we know that, there's no debate about that. It matches a, a statement that I made in an introduction in a two-part series, and I restated it in the second part uh, in the message, which Christ 
as I described the specific Christ of the gospel, I said that the rest of everything else going on in your life compared to this Christ is an insignificant giant distraction. And uh, I was hoping that everybody uh, that heard that was on board with that. But what does the world that opposes the cross of Christ as it says in verse 14 of Galatians 6, it talks about that we're crucified to the world and the world crucified to us about that idea that we only glory in the cross of Christ. The world says you're pretty much dead to us. We've come out of the world because we believe the gospel in reference to coming out of the world to those ideas. And we say you're crucified to us too. We oppose one another. We have two different worldviews. My priority is the glory of God and the cross of Jesus Christ, and you hate Christ. As simple as it gets right there. But the world, when I say world, that's what I'm talking about. What do they do to distract us from that goal, that life goal of always seeing and considering and even worshiping, praising this Christ of that cross. Well, they do everything to distract and talk about and think about and promote everything besides Christ and Him crucified. And that includes the religious world. Verse 1 there, let's just get right into it. Put them in mind to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to every good work. Now, we had Rob read chapter 2 of Titus. In the scripture reading, we know in chapter 1 and verse 4, it says this. This is, you know, we want to kind of gather up who is speaking and to whom and for what. So we know Paul the Apostle is speaking to Titus. And in verse 4 of chapter 1, it says, To Titus, a true child, according to our common faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ our Savior. And this kind of gives a little bit of light about what we're talking about, the context of even what's said in chapter 3. For this cause I left you in Crete, that you might set in order the things lacking and appoint elders in every city as I ordered you. The Apostle Paul, with his apostolic authority in the youthful days of the New Testament church, was going around from city to city and he had people that were sound in the faith, these contacts uh, who were setting up churches and uh, putting things in order. And Titus was one of these guys, and Paul was giving him instruction. You see that same sort of thing in a lot of the other New Testament letters. Then in uh, chapter 2, which, which Rob just read a second ago, Paul tells Titus to deal with particular separate people in certain ways, older men, older women, younger women, younger men, and also servants. So that combination of those people, uh, as well as I mentioned elders, we saw that in those two verses I read, bring us to this chapter here. And as these instructions are dealt out, we're dealing with instructions that Titus is supposed to tell these people to follow. And uh, we're no different. When we read this, these things apply to us. These are you know, pretty much universal in reference to believers. Uh, they're spoken of in other letters and other books of the Bible. Verse 2 says, To speak evil of no one, not being quarrelsome, 
but forbearing and showing all meekness to all men. For we ourselves also were foolish, disobedient, deceived, slaving for various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hating and hating one another. Now, we've talked about contrasting things before, and this is what these two verses are doing. They're saying, do this to other, treat other people this way because you used to be like them. So whenever we talk about anything here, we talk about the gospel and we talk about how to deal with people that we're teaching or preaching the gospel to, we're witnessing to, or we're hoping that God would open their eyes. And there are instructions in several different books on how to deal with people, how to treat them. And we, we talk about that all the time. And a lot of times when we you know, make hard statements here in the teaching, we, we remind everyone, hey, make sure you treat people a certain way because you used to be in their spot. You used to be just like them. You used to be blind. Don't make fun of blind people. Uh, expose that gospel those blind people are looking at. Expose that false Christ. But you used to be just like them. So these are the instructions. He didn't leave that out. That's right there in verse 3. We ourselves were there at one time. Now, having said we ourselves were there at one time does not also eliminate that some of these things now can still be done by us. Because Paul's clear on that, and some of the other writers in the New Testament are clear on that, that some of these things still go on in churches by saints. I say that to remind people like in, in two extremes. Ones that would say, I would never do that. And others that see as they mature and grow, that they still do some of those things and be afraid for their assurance. These things still go on. This is why they're mentioned. There are other books that I can't remember where. I didn't go reference them, but I've clearly seen. I think Ephesians is, is one and some others. Don't, it's talking like don't be hating each other. It's talking to believers. Now, why would he waste his time if, if that couldn't happen or that wasn't happening? So we know that uh, a lot of New Testament letters, you know, usually the first half is theological and the latter half is practical. And, uh, and that's, that's for a good reason, too, because uh, until you take the first step to do the practical, you have got to have the gospel. You have to, can't be performing off of a platform of a false gospel. We have to know about repentance from dead works and self-righteousness before we actually step out to obey God and live the Christian life. This is basic. These two verses here reminded me of, and you can turn there if you want, 2 Timothy 2. This just came up in, a, in the conference. Uh, Jason was preaching uh, on gospel repentance out of this text here. But it, it reminded me that it was really, really parallel with this, uh, what we're looking at here in Titus. But in um, 2 Timothy 2, Verse 24, and a servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach and patient, in meekness instructing those that oppose themselves. Now, stop there a second. Think about what was said in the other text. Almost all this stuff was already said in the other text, but I'm going to bring this point up. We used to oppose ourselves. And we didn't even know it until the gospel came. The people that we're dealing with in the gospel 
are opposing themselves and they don't even know it. They're deceived. They're ignorant of the truth of what's going on. So this is why that instruction must be done in meekness. The second part of that uh, sentence there in verse 25, if God peradventure will give them repentance into the acknowledging of the truth, that they may recover themselves out of the snare or trap of the devil, who, speaking of the devil, has taken them captive at his own will, which is a pretty good verse against free will, those that are not regenerated, they're in this state, Satan's will is much stronger than theirs. We know that if they are going to be converted, we know that God's will trumps the whole deal, right? They're going to come to him if they're God's sheep. But uh, I, I think Jason mentioned in his message at the conference concerning uh, these verses here, peradventure that God would grant them God just do this because God just might grant him repentance. And then Jason said, well, guess who might be coming to lunch with you and believe in that same gospel and you be dealing with them the rest of your life in fellowship. That's a practical reason not to be an idiot toward people, you know, because you are the one that's an example. You're the one that's supposed to be the one doing the teaching. And then if this person does get converted, they might scratch their head and say, why did you act like that toward me? Yeah, I believe the gospel now, but why did you deal with me like that? And then you have the young believer now teaching the one who taught them the gospel. See, let's just bypass that whole uh, network of baloney and um, do what the text here says so that we won't have to be reminded of our foolishness. And I think to one extent or another, you know, everyone has, has not acted right and spoke right in the beginning or sometimes in the middle <laughs> or sometimes maybe yesterday right so this is a training issue it's a constant reminder look at verse 4 and here's where it turns to the uh, the theological in this chapter but when the kindness this is contrasting you, you used to be there there's time past where you used to be like this but when the kindness and love of God our Savior toward men appeared, there was a change that took place, an effect on you to cause you to be made to see certain things, which opened up a whole new world. And um, you were before in darkness. Now you can see the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I, I quoted... Something recently in Romans 2.4, which I'll quote here, it's almost exactly like this. The riches of his kindness and the forbearance and long-suffering, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance. So here we see that the kindness of God leading men to repentance. And what I had said about that in the context of that other message was, God does not necessarily, it's a weird form of evangelism that, that we had maybe been tied to before that, there is some type of a fire and brimstone scare tactics that scare you into repentance. And I had mentioned in connection with that in Revelation, it talks about that God, I don't remember what chapter, he took this certain group of people and he pressed them with all these different plagues and things. And people would look at that and think, well, well, that's going to work. That's going to cause them to straighten up. 
I mean, think about repentance is a gift of God. It's not like you do something to somebody and you're looking at that person. Will this make them repent? I mean, that's just a totally, you're off the tracks, <laughs> right? Same with faith. You know, something happens in somebody's life and then we or others have this crooked idea. Well, that'll make them believe. What did Christ say about, remember the uh, guy went to hell? He said, send somebody to go tell my brothers. Let me go back and tell my brothers. And Christ said, if somebody came back from the dead, it, it, that's not going to help. They've got the gospel in Moses. He wrote about me. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, not by scare tactics. Well, if you could just tailor a classic message like uh, sinners in the hands of an angry God and just scare people to death, they're bound to repent. If they don't repent, then, then I don't know what's wrong with them. <laughs> the kindness and goodness of God works that repentance in a sinner to believe the gospel. And he's going to do it to all his sheep through the gospel. I think there's a, there's, there's a debriefing sometimes that has not gone on on our brains that removes the residue of that false evangelism, the methods that are tied to Arminianism and conditionalism. Now we know, as the text here, it says, the kindness and love of God our Savior has appeared. So we know that we're shown that nothing can separate us from the love of God. It says that in Romans 8. Nothing. There's a long list of things. You can come up and make up anything you want to add to that list. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Look at uh, 1 John 3.16. That's easy to remember because of the famous John 3.16. Look at 1 John 3.16, which is way less quoted than John 3.16. It's very much related. It says, By this we know the love of God, because he laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. So some might be looking at John 3.16, and they'll obviously turn it into a, an offer that's potentially available and might work if you take it. This gets, I think, a little bit more specific. I think you can see that. It says specifically that he laid down his life, and he's talking to believers, for us. To where some would take John 3.16 and make it, well, here's what's available. God loved the world. He gave his son. And if you believe in him, so that in their minds they see the conditions being set up of the potential availability of a provision that was general, right? This is more specific. I think John 3.16 is specific too, but this one here, I think the language is much more clear and cuts through that uh, those misconceptions pretty quick. But do we see here in this verse, for example, uh, any kind of a, a common goodness or a, or a common kindness universally here? Uh, is this a universal common grace? We know better. Uh, we're going to deal with common grace in our election series. No, it's not. The answer is no, it's not. Uh, there's no possible way. If, you know, in the minds of some, it is, again, a universal provision based on conditions fulfilled by the sinner, 
But the next line kind of destroys that idea here. Verse 5, Titus 3, 5. Not, it's just like out of, it's, just, it's, a, it's a stop and a break of the thought, and he throws in a negative. Uh, in case you didn't know, let me say something he's saying that counters maybe something you, you might have been thinking or, or others might accuse you of thinking. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done. So, you know, the list of those things that could be works of righteousness are very long. And um, sometimes uh, it, it, it shouldn't, but sometimes it surprises us when we hear new things that people in false religion count on. Like we'd never heard that before. It's a new one. Add that to the list of works of righteousness that they uh, were counting on. And let me... Since this is related to 1 John 4, it's where I want us to look at. This is very much related to the other thing in 1 John that we looked at. What do people consider might be works of righteousness? Of course, they might not know that that's what they're doing. But what are some of the, like, the big hitters, or the top things people might look at or do and be deceived and later at judgment say but Lord Lord first John 4 and verse 10 and this is love see it's here's another break just like the verse that we are looking at the same type break there's a common it says not so it's to divert your attention to make a distinction here John is saying this is not what I'm saying I'm telling you what it's not as well as what it is this is love, not that we loved God. That's not what I'm talking about, he says. But that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Satisfaction of God's law and wrath and justice for our sins in our place. So the reason I brought us here, some of you may have figured it out by now. Not that we loved God. Some people look at that as a righteousness. Well, I love God, right? But Lord, Lord, didn't I love you? Is that a safe ground to be a plea at judgment? Do you want to be judged on how well you love the Lord your God with all your heart? First of all, nobody ever has in the world. Christ is the only one that has kept the law. Nobody has kept that commandment yet. Loving the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, all that, and, and your neighbors yourself. Nobody's done that yet. So why would you want to be judged by that law? So that could be, in some people's minds, a work of righteousness. We're exhorted to love God and our neighbor. There's no excuse not to. We know when we don't, we're sinning. That's clear. It's our fault. There's no excuse. I mean, we go on and on. We how we clarify what sin is and and how we should react to sin. But if we see our love toward God or our neighbor as forming any part of a righteousness, we don't understand the gospel. You can't start loving God or your neighbor until you have 
the gospel straight and work off the gospel platform of there is no condemnation now to those that are in Christ Jesus. And I'm not going to be condemned by not loving God as well as I should or my neighbor as well as I should. And then as that's when I understand that I'm accepted only in Christ. Then my love toward God and my neighbor can work off the proper platform. Until then, it's just going to be dead works. It'll be sin. Of course, what can some of the other um, things be listed that would be works of righteousness? Obviously, law stuff, right? Works of the law. We've got several warnings about that. Works of the law in any form. Some could be having in their minds that I'm working, working out of righteousness. That recommends me to God. That makes me acceptable. And then as it goes on, it gets more subtle. And we know this. Uh, I know it from my own experience because I was deceived in this. Some of you were too, that some would turn faith and repentance into a work of righteousness. And they could do that in a few different ways. They could tie it into making it a condition or turning it into an actual law. Like faith is a law, repentance is a law, right? And making it conditional that if you fulfill that condition, you've fulfilled that law, and therefore you are earning what you're told to believe and repent to get, right? So that can be turned into a law in people's minds. I did that. I did that for you for two decades almost. And um, some might think, well, this is coming from my own will, so it's derived from an inside source. Synergistically, I'm, I'm doing this. God doesn't repent and believe for me, I've been told, so I have to do it, right? So there's these subtle things that um, people look at actually separate from the gospel or ignorant of the gospel that they try to work at in their depraved mind with... A good dose of self-righteousness all mixed in there. Some in a, like an invitation system altar call sinner's prayer idea package would have the problem with what I just said, faith and repentance, because that's part of that system where they bring it in as a condition. And tied to that, what doesn't help is the warped view of what confession is. Confessing Christ, confessing sin, they, they turn that into like an asking for forgiveness to be the catalyst to get forgiveness. Asking, all I got to do is ask Jesus into my heart and name my sins and I'll get forgiveness. Some believe even you'll get the new birth by doing that. You'll get born again. Calling on the name of the Lord. People would read that and turn that into a condition. Whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And a person can, instead of, in a gospel context, after they had believed the gospel, and, and because that is the order, you can read it in, in Romans 10, that is the order, that you believe on him before you call. But some would, some would uh, look at the calling as like the catalyst that caused it all to happen and make that a condition, which would be, Works of righteousness. Ask that guy in Matthew 7 about calling on the name of the Lord. He did it all the time. He did it right there at judgment. But Lord, Lord, 
He was very familiar at calling on the name of the Lord. Different Christ. He called on one that would accept his works of righteousness. It was a figment of his imagination. False Christ. And then as you go down the list, it gets the standard continues to lower and lower and lower. And then, as we know, people would consider that, that especially see that they're having a problem fulfilling these conditions and they have this burden on their back. Then they change it to, well, I mean, God only expects you to do your best. I mean, sincerely. So sincerity. And then what some of the, a lot of the uh, Calvinistic Reformed Sovereign Grace people will slip in subtly who pervert some of these things. They would say, well, it, it boils down to desires. It boils down to desires. Do you want to go to judgment and be judged based on your desires? Do you have perfect desires? <laughs> You'd be a fool to. Your desires are not your propitiation. Your sincerity is not your propitiation. Everything I mentioned here is not the propitiation. It is the merit of the death of Christ and you can only be accepted in that, in him, and nothing else. Until we get that straight, until everybody gets that straight, don't do anything. Don't start to attempt to commence to get started to do anything. Because you're, you're falling in a pit. And you will in the end, if you do it during your lifetime. So, what about those who are ignorant that they are doing these works of righteousness. That is a, a pretty hairy question that a lot of people will depart from me on. And a lot of the people that I know that preach the gospel, they'll depart from them on this question because we try to stick, you know, biblically to our guns, so to speak, and not compromise on, on ignorance of the gospel. Is it possible, first of all, just the question, is it possible for somebody to be actually be doing works of righteousness and not know it. You know, in other words, wrong works of righteousness and not know it. Of course it's possible. It's the case in every case. <laughs> that's all that's going on. It's called deception. And everybody did it before they were converted. How can we determine that? Again, it, it, it's, it is what deception is. And it's all that unbelievers can do and will do before they're believers. Now, it's not that I don't care about people and I don't have the power to let people slide. We have to judge by the gospel, which means I have to judge myself by the gospel first. And as I do that, we can't be biased, first of all, on ourselves. We can't be biased on our friends and loved ones. Judgment in, by, and through the gospel has to say the same. We don't flex for people that we like or flex in the other direction for people we don't like. There is only one way of salvation, and those that don't know that way and believe that way are not converted. They're not saved. They're deceived. It is... The blindness of self-righteousness, that as I, as I mentioned in that message not too long ago, the deceivableness of unrighteousness. The gospel has to explode that. 
in our minds. We have to be given a new heart to see that, eyes to see. We've got to be born again to see that. So it means they're ignorant of grace. They're ignorant of mercy in Christ alone for salvation. And that's what this context is talking about. The kindness and love and mercy of God. They don't know anything about it. You can see that by people's resistance to it when we preach it. Look at the second part of that uh, verse 5. It says, but according to his mercy, he saved us. According to, and it's pointing right to what took place. What overruled what before we thought were works of righteousness. This other thing overruled it. And as the foundation took the place in our minds now as the foundation, it's not by works, it's by mercy. That's how he saved us. And you know what? It's not a combination. That's the deceitful thing a lot of times, the deceiving thing, because the more of a combination you can make it. And um, these false preachers are like scientists with their formulas. And if it's just a point zero 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 one, that's the subtle one. That much works of righteousness put in there. You get that stealth message in their minds and keep pumping them with that. Then they're going to fall for that. They're going to retain that. They're going to hold on to that. That's the thing they're going to plea at judgment. But, however, you know, it's but or however, you know, either one. What they're doing is they're adding. They're adding conditions. Works of righteousness. It's the same thing. But he saved us by his mercy, uh, or this word can mean compassion. And we know about God's sovereign mercy. We've been looking at that in uh, the election series. We looked at uh, you know Exodus 33, which is requoted here in Romans 9, 15 and 16. You have to turn there. I know you have it memorized. For he said to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. And notice this, verse 16. So then it is not of the one willing nor of the one running. Now what's synonymous there? It's not by works of righteousness. It's saying the same thing, right? It's easy to see. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done. This word uh, mercy in Romans 9 comes from the word mercy in our text. It's not the exact same word, but it comes from that word. And again, it's related to compassion. It goes on to say, but of God who shows mercy. Now, part of God uh, showing mercy toward his elect, in other words, in their direction, mercy is directed to them. Part of God's mercy is doing that. But related to a question I asked earlier, the statement I want to make here, but also part of that mercy is he reveals it to us that he did it. There was a Reformed Baptist pastor years ago, I don't even know if he's alive anymore, that I had a conversation with. Always wanted to argue about this point about what people know and believe. You know, always trying to get me to come up with some reduced formula. Well, what do you got to know to be saved? You know, that's, every time I saw this guy, he wouldn't do that. Because he couldn't stand that I held to that some of these conditional views of salvation was a false gospel. So every time he saw me, he wanted to talk about this. And uh, I said 
to him, I asked, I thought, well, I'm just going to go to the extreme and ask him this question. Do you believe that a person can believe that they are believing in works for salvation and still be saved? He said, yes. Now, we even believe that the scripture teaches that you can believe you're saved by works and not even know it and still be lost. He opened it up into a new <laughs> extreme idea that you can know, actually, like I am being saved by my works and still be saved believing that. That's, I don't even know what to say to that. It's ridiculous. But scripture is even clear on, you know, holding to Romans 10, 1 through 4. Paul says, my prayer and heart's desire for Israel to be saved. I bear them record they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge, for they being ignorant of God's righteousness are going about to establish their own Christ the end of the law for righteousness. So these people didn't know what they were doing. They were ignorant of it. And uh, Paul said they're lost. It's deception. It's, it's automatic. This is natural. This is what we all are by nature. And this is what the warning was in the first few verses of our text. Remember that you were there. That's the way you were. So deal with people in that manner. It's not like your spiritual eyes came from you in the first place. Through God's kindness, love, and mercy, you're able to see. So give them the means. Treat them right when you're giving them the means of the gospel. And maybe God will save them. But don't act like an idiot when you're doing it. So he reveals to us that he does this. And we know it. We see it. We believe it. So this is really nothing short of him revealing the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It is our, for, for lack of a better term, our conversion experience. What good would it be if we just find out that somehow intuitively that we're saved but we don't know who did it. We don't know if God did it or we or we did it. Isn't that stupid? That's foolish. The gospel is clear. This text is clear. And all the things are in harmony. This is why, this is why it's so important to be on guard for false teachings that, that want to creep in and, and make adjustments to this truth. So what happens when this takes place? Look at the third part of uh, the sentence in verse 5. Through the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. This is how this, this, is how this unfolds in time as we experience a conscious awareness of this taking place. Looking back on it, this is like, this is the mechanics I'll say that irreverently, but this is how it works, in other words. It's because of something took place first. Washing the regeneration, the renewal of the Holy Spirit. So God the Spirit, there's several different words used. Quickens, makes alive, talks about the new birth, the new heart, uh, the mind of Christ. All these things are, are given to us. And that is the change that takes place. A totally new mind, new heart. We think differently after that. We think the opposite of the way we thought before. We are no longer at enmity against God. Now we are caused to love God, and we know why. Motives are changed. Our whole gospel uh, foundation 
is set in place and we do things totally now for a different reason. That spiritual deadness is not there anymore by life that God gives. We passed from death unto life. Before that, we were walking in the flesh. We were enemies of God. We were, we were hating God. It says that clearly in Romans 8 and other texts. So what's the foundation or ground for God doing that, for that, for that change? Verse 6, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Christ Jesus, our Savior. Of course, this is the ground of everything. The Spirit always and only works off of the previous ground of what Christ did for us. Now, the Spirit is life because of that righteousness, and now he works in us because of what Christ did for us. We know this is the doing and the dying of Christ. He laid down his life as a substitutionary, effectual sacrifice to the Father for his sheep. And this is where really all of our focus and preeminent focus is all the time, is the worship of him because of that work. So salvation is through Mercy in that propitiation. His words are very much related, as we've talked about before. So, you know, he satisfies the wrath of God and justice against our sins. And it's an absolute perfect righteousness that he establishes, that he merits for us. He brings it in, he works it out. And it is legally charged or transferred to our account. And that is what's stated in, in verse 7 of chapter 3 of Titus, that being justified by his grace. When you hear grace, I mean, right away, you could you could add again that little, little bracket, not of works of righteousness, but by his grace. So again, remember the, the, the thing that I had mentioned that I remember as a little package to remember as a quick reference how to preach the gospel as a three-point outline as we're justified by the imputed righteousness of Christ based on his effectual atonement. That's it in a nutshell. So what's the result of that? That we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We know in, in different places we're told that we have an inheritance, we're joint heirs with Christ, and we have that, that confident expectation that the promise of eternal life is based on the mercy of his accomplished work. That's all that it's based on. If you extend that promise based on something besides the mercy and the accomplished work of Christ, you have extended a lie, not a promise. So this is all of grace. And um, really, there's, there's no, this is what people can't stand. There are no strings attached. Grace does not have strings attached. Grace is attached to Christ. And this is the way salvation is worked out. There are no form of conditions. There's no jumping through hoops. There's no chasing some legal carrot on a stick. Christ took care of that. Salvation by free and sovereign grace. So as a result of that, seeing that, what does that do, should do, and does do in us after seeing that gospel? Does it cause us to say, whoop-de-doo, who cares? I got my free stuff. 
and I don't care anymore. Does it cause that? Verse 8, faithful is the word. And as to these things, I desire that you strongly affirm that those believing God might be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. There's, there's a few things we need to keep together in our minds here. Not only what I've said since I started this message. That's the gospel stuff, that platform we work on. But notice here, to be careful, those that believe the gospel, to be careful to maintain good works. And notice this, these are good and profitable unto men. This is not dangerous. If we have the right knowledge of, of what we are supposed to do, if we have the right gospel, then those methods and means as we live the Christian life, learning that and being exhorted to do that is the maintenance of those good works. And it will be good and profitable if we stay on the tracks and not be pulled away by false teachers. That And this is the subtle part. It always happens. There's not only subtlety in preaching of trying to get people to come to Christ, but for in reference to justification. But there is a lot more subtlety, I think, at least who we hang around with, and by extension, of people trying to change the idea of sanctification and making works somehow, eventually, no matter how far down the line, be certain small part of a final condition for salvation. Some people might throw in a dash of mystery. They might at the end say, I don't know how it works at the end. I'm not real sure. If you can explain it, you're smarter than me. You know, they say something stupid like that. But way on down there, because of some of these texts, it says, you know, you're going to be judged according to your works. Texts like that, they just they toss them to the Armenian or the Wesleyan or the perfectionist. And they say, it beats me, guys. You got this one. And then they're just like going to judgment like this. I hope, you know, the other kind, not the confident expectation, but some kind of a wish. And they're like a leaf in the wind and they have no assurance. And everybody they talk to is contagious. And then they won't have assurance. And then everybody listens to that guy. I've heard several people say about certain preachers, every time I listen to that guy, I think I'm lost. <laughs> Has good reason. Yeah, because he's preaching a false gospel. You're either being pulled toward it, you're a believer, and you're either being pulled toward it, or you actually believe it. It's one or the other. Might be a, a time of temporary bewitchment, or you've swallowed a hook, line, and sinker. So, you know, the foreordination of good works was already prepared by God for his people, and will be worked out in their life in time by faith through the operation of the Spirit of God. We, we call this monergism. The energy comes from God. He does it in us and through us as we live by faith under the dominion of grace. This takes place. God prepared it. He decreed it. It's going to happen. Nobody's going to stop these good works that he's going to cause in his people. Nobody's going to stop it. 
God has plans for these to take place. He says they will take place. He's decreed it. Nobody's messed up his decree before. Why should we expect good works after salvation not to take place by the providence and sovereignty and power of God? So God's people, they see these as their cheerful and reasonable service. Right? I mean, because if it's not, it's something's wrong with it. It's their cheerful and reasonable service. To somebody that has a heart of thankfulness, do something to seek a reward. Is that their incentive? No, God's sheep are not mercenaries. Are we familiar with what mercenaries are? You know, when I was younger, uh, much younger, I, you know, you play with army men and stuff, you watch army movies. Um, military movies, war movies. You know, I had the little little toys, everything to about war when I was younger. And uh, then when I was later in my teen years, when I started messing with weapons and stuff, I actually started reading uh, magazines that dealt with weapons. And one magazine was called Soldier of Fortune, and it dealt a lot with mercenaries. And I, it's the first time I was ever exposed to the idea as a young teenager, seeing these people that were in, like, special ops, Going to a country they kind of they didn't even care about. They're going there to get paid. They have the skills. These people over here are willing to pay them for their skills. I don't care who wins. They're getting paid. And they're going to try to get as many perks as possible. God's people are not doing this to get paid. In other words, to get accolades, to, get, to be able to boast, to be able to get brownie points, to stack up rewards. Wrong motive. That's, that was false religion's motive. Nor do they serve him because they're afraid they'll be condemned. Because you can't serve him until you know you're not condemned. You have to start out serving him knowing you're not condemned. These things are so simple. But false religion, every week I see it. Put something up on social media. A gospel statement, here they come, yip-yapping. So that idea of um, doing it for rewards or doing it out of fear of punishment, that's been, that's been taken care of. We've been granted repentance from that dead false foundation. Now again, we have to guard uh, of influence of people bringing that back in our lives and in our loved ones' lives and in our, in our ministry because that is what the enemy will do, try to penetrate about that idea right there. So what do we do with uh, remaining immorality? We talk pretty good about self-righteousness. We can identify that now because we know the gospel. But what about immorality? What about thoughts of the immoral flesh? I'm not talking about self-righteousness right now. I'm talking about remaining sins that are common to all people that are against people and against God, even in our thoughts. So how do we deal with that? What, in other words, what is different now? In that realm, now that we're converted, that was different in the realm of that 
arena of immorality before we were converted. We know what we did before we were converted. Fear, guilt. We try to reconcile ourselves to God by self-righteousness. That was the that was the boo-boo patch. That was what we thought took care of it. But now, you know, like thoughts or acts of anything, whether it be stealing, lying, adultery, things like this. How does that handled now that we are believers? The question is, what do we do with remaining in immorality? My first question is, or statement, it's a statement. All believers still sin every day. This is a fact. And, and I dare anybody that claims to be a believer, and, and, and at least the type of stuff we teach, I, I'm not, I don't even count Armenianism. I dare anybody to claim that they don't still sin every day. It would look pretty bad if they did, you know. I had mentioned another statement that nobody has yet kept one law. That's what it means when I say all, all believers still sin every day. When I say that, I don't know why people want to get dull in the brain and react and say, now he's saying we can do anything we want. Why, why does that reaction come up? I have some ideas. One is that they're protecting what they think that they're doing as part of the reason that they're getting there. It's a little idolatry thing that they're holding on to. And it might kind of use some reverse psychology. You might think uh, they're looking at somebody that would make statements that I've made in this message and still not hear what I'm saying and say, well, he's getting away with it. Why can't I? It shows that they want to get away with something I'm not even talking about. Do you see the folly, foolishness? First John uh, 2, 1 says this, My little children, I write these things to you. What? Here's the standard of Christian living. That you not sin. That's the standard of the for the believer. But we have a different platform to work on than we did before. Now, I hear I hear this garbage of this lowering of the standard and these uh, other ideas where as long as you sin less. That's not the standard. It says don't sin. And I'm telling you you can't do this. That's why what it says in the next line. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. In other words, this is why we believe the gospel. And again, i got to say it in case goofballs follow up with, so you say you can believe the gospel and do whatever you want. I just said what the standard was. Don't sin. Right? <laughs> I mean, it doesn't matter what you say. That's the standard. Now, us looking at ourselves, and this is, this is really the biggie, we have to see ourselves in a distinct way 
that we have changed positions or states. The new creature is one that is accepted now in a different way. He wasn't accepted at all before in his own person. But the new creature is one that is accepted only and always in Christ and looked upon as absolutely perfect because Christ, who is absolutely perfect, provided an absolutely perfect righteousness that's transferred to our account. Now we have it. That's who now we identify as a new creature in Christ. Perfectly righteous. Perfect. No flaws. As he is, so are we in the world. And all those other texts that may flood your mind about who can lay anything to the charge of God's elect. Uh, there's therefore no condemnation that's in Christ. Uh, I think of uh, Jude, the last verse, talks about he's able to present you faultless before the throne. Uh, Colossians 1, three things are mentioned. I can't remember them all three, but in other words, sin is not imputed to your account, so there's nothing to see there anymore. There's righteousness there. Right? All the all those texts combined and piled up. Bolster. The same thing over and over again. God requires perfection. God's people have it because they're in Christ. And in a practical matter, don't sin. Not just don't sin less. You're exhorted not to sin at all. But when you sin, you got an advocate. You know what? We're going to be going to the advocate a lot. That's the point. Right? And, and that office of advocacy is there to be used. And if we think that we're getting better, we don't need that advocate. Eh, I'm getting better. I need him less and less and less. Have fun with that. Good job. You're doing a good job. All praise to the one that is progressively getting better and better and better. There's no, there's no, Paul didn't talk that way. In Romans 7. He had a more clear view of what he really was in two aspects. And that's the point. We need to make a distinction. Me, in my own person, outside of Christ, dwells no good thing. I'm not fighting this battle outside of Christ. Again, we talked about this, I think it was last week and times before. When I'm talking about these things, I'm talking to the new creature. I'm not talking to the flesh. And some of these people in these legalistic ideas and the wrong views of sanctification are pointing people to what they do in their bodies, in their flesh, and they'll be judged by that. And then they say, but you somehow you were unconditionally justified in Christ through faith alone. And they just they get that thing all tangled up. And they make no distinctions. By faith, we look to ourselves as being these things in Christ, because God says them. If you don't believe them, if you don't believe what God says about it, you're going to see yourself as some type of, well, maybe part of the other person, of you know, the other part of who I am, I have to bring in and be a part of performing so I can be accepted. No. Christ is the propitiation. We are justified through his righteousness. The object of our faith is the object, not faith in what we're doing and who we are. If we had, uh, you know, three times as much time, we could develop that further. 
So in reference to our now, our sins that we commit as believers that are in the immorality side, what does our confession, our repentance, our forgiveness and things like that, what, how do they look different after God's given us a new heart and, and a cleansed conscience? That's the other thing, too. And we're led by his spirit. We're led by the spirit. We're not led by the law. And we're not led by our conscience in connection to the law because we have a cleansed conscience because of what Christ did with the law. If you don't get that, you're going you're gonna to have some problems. It's going to be a bumpy road. So we know that there's a difference relating to self-righteousness. We've been given repentance from dead works. But what about those immoral thoughts and deeds? Well, we recognize them. And we don't think of them now like we did before, like, oh, I have to do something to make up for that, or I have to do something to earn forgiveness, or I have to do something to get rewards. If I, if I sin less, then I have opportunities to sin. That's going to ramp up my points with God. We don't think that way anymore. We know that when we sin... We don't sit there and just like spend 98% of our energy just wallowing in guilt over it. He says, we've got an advocate. Look to your advocate. Learn your lesson. Move on. Don't do that anymore. Don't provide provisions. Don't have provisions provided for the flesh to operate in whatever realm that the problem is in. Uh, you've got prayer. You've got the local assembly. You have all these different means. You have the scripture, the word of God. And you continually look and learn and grow and you mortify the deeds of the flesh, which is clear in Scripture. You kill them off. Does that mean they're not going to come back or you're not still? Does it mean you're still going to sin every day? Yeah, you're still going to sin every day. I guarantee it. But sin not. And when you do, you got an advocate. And again, you're going to be visiting your advocate pretty often. Problem is, here's the problem. People don't visit the advocate. They deal with it on their own like they did before. That's the issue. And when they fiddle with that, it has to do with them. And they're losing the battle. And they're lacking assurance. I'm going to my advocate. That's where my assurance is. That's where my righteousness is. And when I do that, you think, oh, that's the easy way out. <laughs> no, that's the right way out. And that is the way that causes assurance. That is, that is the thing that keeps bringing me a, a more pure motive for the incentive and motive to obey him in the first place. That's where the rubber meets the road, right there. It's, it's really, really simple. It's false religion that confuses it. We're running out of time here. I'm just going to stop because it kind of shifts gears here anyway. Really, some of these foolish questions it mentions here in verse 9 is related to the same thing we're talking about. Uh, strivings about the law. It's connected, but any questions or comments before we uh, move on?